we start with COVID in schools. Now, a big announcement yesterday from the education minister, Jennifer Whiteside, expanding mandatory masks in schools. And here's what she said yesterday. In all indoor areas of the school, including when they are in their learning group. Okay, but you're still allowed to take the mask off while you're sitting at your desk in class. That disappointed the teachers' union yesterday. They wanted to see a stricter mask policy in schools. Let's talk about teachers in our public school system now and protecting frontline workers and students from COVID-19. Think about this now. Should teachers be near the top of the line to get the COVID-19 vaccine? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Jeff Johnson. He's a columnist at the Victoria Times Colonist newspaper. He's a former superintendent of schools. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for this. Uh, what did you think of that announcement yesterday, first of all, on, on the mask order? Do you think that should have been a, a wider a wider mask order? I think it's a good step uh, in terms of insisting that kids wear masks. I'm not sure about the... Um, the thing about elementary children wearing masks, uh, whether or not they decide to, it's voluntary. There's a study out from South Korea, which uh, was an extensive study in that country, which determined that children younger than 10 uh, transmit to others less often than adults do, but right. the, the risk is not zero. Right. And certainly, as they get older, between the ages of 10 and 19, those children can spread the virus at least as well as adults do. The problem with all this is that children are less likely, apparently, according to these studies, uh, less likely than adults to show symptoms. So even the study itself may have underestimated the number of children who do set up a chain of transmission with their own households. And even at that, the researchers were able to trace the contacts only of the children who felt ill so it's, it's not huh. clear how efficiently asymptomatic children uh, spread, the, uh, spread the virus. And that's according to Caitlin Rivers, who's an epidemiologist at John Hopkins uh, School of Public Health. Okay. So it, it kind of takes me back to uh, Donald Rumsfeld, who you'll remember as the <laughs> Secretary for Defense, yeah. and who talked about the things that we know, uh, the things that we don't know, but most importantly, as he put it, the unknown unknowns. That is to say, mm. the things we don't know that we don't know. And so I've got to have enormous respect for people like Adrian Dixon, Dr. Henry, and Jennifer Whiteside, and others who are dealing with a situation involving um, things that we don't know that we don't know these things. And as Jennifer Whiteside herself said just recently, um, they're, they're developing policy as the situation evolves. And okay. so let's, let's talk, let's, let's, let's segue here quickly to, to the vaccine issue, because I think this is, is, is really fascinating. You wrote an article arguing that teachers should receive early access to the vaccine. Correct. Can you, can you make that case? Can you, can you convince the listeners here that teachers should get the shot early? I think it's easier to make the case for people who, as I said in the piece that I wrote, for people who have spent a significant part of their careers in an 80-square-meter classroom, which is not a very big room, with uh, 25 and sometimes 30 children, none of whom have been tested, and so we don't know what their status is. Those rooms weren't built to deal with a situation like this. They are notoriously uh, poorly ventilated. 
Uh, as the weather gets colder, it's all very well to talk about, well, have the windows open, but, you know, that doesn't really work either in, in our climate. So do I think teachers uh, are at greater risk than other people? Absolutely, I do. And certainly there are people out there who are dealing with cases of COVID, but they're dealing with them one by one. In the case of hospital workers, for example, they're provided with protective gear. Uh, in the case of people who are working in the grocery store that I buy my stuff at, there are plexiglass shields, there are masks, and so on and so on. Unless you've worked in a room with 25 kids and you've insisted that they keep their masks on, that they keep their hands off each other, both in the classroom and, more importantly, in the hallways and then in the playground, it's, it's a very different situation, Mike. And, yes, I do believe that teachers potentially are at greater risk. Now, I'll just carry on with this for a minute if I could. Sure. If we look at the Vancouver area itself, in BC's lower mainland area, um, there's about 50% of the schools now which have declared an exposure, and sometimes that's just maybe one person or two person. Those right. details aren't available. But when you have about 50% of your schools that are being declared as having had an exposure, that means that the situation is getting very serious. And it's not as if this isn't a virus or a disease that's actually killing people. Of course it is. In B.C. right now, well over 1,200 people have died from this virus. And we're still not even completely sure about how it's transmitted, whether it's by droplets or whether it's what the scientists call you know, a mist. Uh, originally, it was thought that the virus was just a respiratory illness. At least we know now that it's far more than that. And it uh, displays a range of symptoms or doesn't display those symptoms uh, very early in the, uh, in the, uh, the game. Let, with, let, um, let, me yeah. play, let me play this for you, Jeff. Speaking to Jeff Johnson, former superintendent of schools, he believes teachers should get early access to, to the vaccine. Let me play this clip for you from Premier John Horgan. Right now, the government has rolled out a vaccine plan based pretty, based largely on age. So the older you are, you would, you would move to the front of the line to get the vaccine. So teachers, if they did not meet that age cohort, most of them would not. Of course, they'd be retired by that time. They would have to wait. And here is Horgan making the case for that and defending this system, saying there's lots of professions want to get the vaccine early. And here he is explaining why they're not getting it. Horgan. I know uh, how people feel about this uh, in almost every sector uh, in the economy. I received mail uh, a couple of inches thick uh, from advocates saying that their particular sector, their particular profession uh, deserved a higher priority. And all of the arguments were very compelling. Every component of our society is important. But the science is pretty clear. Dr. Henry, Dr. Ballin have made that clear today. Age is the, prompt, uh, is the dominant determinant factor on severe illness and death. Okay, as John Horgan there. Why should teachers jump to the front of the line, given that, what he just described there? Well, I've certainly got no argument with what uh, Premier Horgan is saying there. Uh, and I, I should add that we've, we've really got to do a, a, a better job of recognizing the work that's being done by Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry and Jennifer Whiteside and others, who, as I said, are trying to deal with a situation that we don't fully, even they and the scientists, don't fully understand. So why teachers? Well, as I said, uh, unless you've spent part of your career in an 80 square meter classroom with 25 kids breathing and coughing and sneezing and, and so on and so on, uh, perhaps you, 
you, you might not understand why I say, yeah, teachers should be moved up the list because they are theoretically at uh, at greater risk. You do know, we the see, average age we... of teachers in the average age yeah. of teachers in British Columbia is over forty five now. And these aren't young people anymore. There's very few young people coming into the profession. Let me ask you so, this real quickly. Is there any evidence that teachers are catching COVID uh, more than other professions? Like you outlined some very interesting WorkSafe BC numbers. Can you tell me uh, briefly about that? Um, I can tell you that the BCTL, BCTF itself is struggling to uh, I, I answer the question that you just asked. Um, how many teachers have contracted this we don't know. We know that WorkSafe BC, through its own data systems, has identified education workers as being significantly at risk, and they have the numbers to prove that. Jeff, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome, Mike, and uh, good luck with your, uh, with your push on this. Thank you very much. Jeff Johnson, he's a former superintendent of schools in West Vancouver, making the case there to give teachers early access to the COVID-19 vaccine. Let's talk about Canadians drowning in red ink now. Consumer debt in Canada on the rise. Lots of people can get in lots of trouble when they rack up unsustainable debt. Is there a way out? Can you get your debt forgiven? and written off let's talk about that now with a great guest i got for you sean stack he's a licensed insolvency trustees with bromwich and smith very pleased to welcome you to the show sean thanks a lot for coming on oh absolutely my pleasure mike what is the debt picture like out there in this country right now is consumer debt on the rise well you know mike it it absolutely is um consumer debt increases year over year and uh, so too does consumer insolvency and this is so consumers looking to restructure their debt through the uh, legislation that we do have right how does what is the difference between insolvency is that like bankruptcy yeah you know it's it's a great question it's uh so insolvency just means it's it's an inability to to pay your debts as they become due is one definition or if you were to sell all of your assets you wouldn't be able to pay off your uh your debts so um, bankruptcy is a type of insolvency um, and a type of restructuring, but there's much more popular ways to go about that uh, as consumers through what's called a consumer proposal. Right. Now, you guys did a really interesting survey on Canadians' attitude toward debt, and when people are in a desperate situation, uh, should there be a path to debt forgiveness so let's start with student loans for example like a lot of people have looked at student debt and student loans and have talked about debt forgiveness for to for paying off student loans what did your survey find out about sort of canadian attitudes toward that debt forgiveness let's start with the student loans what did you find out there well student loans actually um 52 percent actually indicated that uh, you know it would be appropriate and, and of course in in the younger canadians that are actually sort of saddled with the student loans um it's uh Obviously, they're a little more supportive of that. What was quite interesting about the uh, the survey, Mike, was that it, it, a lot of what people said, hey, it's appropriate to forgive this type of debt or things that we typically would look at as something that is outside of our control, something like a critical illness or a death yeah. of a spouse or a, a loved one. Right. So let's say you have sort of some catastrophic event in your life, like a critical illness, and you have the, these crippling debts at the same time. Is there a path to having that debt forgiven or written off? Yeah, you know, absolutely. In fact, Mike, the the idea behind um, uh, why we wanted to do something like this is is we're always doing sort of polls to test sort of what the what the the, the zeitgeist is in the culture with respect to this debt because yeah. debt keeps going up and so too does the uh, so so too does insolvency um, and. 
realistically, what, what it's looking at and what we're finding is that there's more and more empathy around people's um, plights that they're facing. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with the pandemic and things that are really outside of people's control. Right. So you mentioned like public attitudes. People are a bit more understanding or forgiving around debt forgiveness on, on things like critical illness is the highest highest marker here for public support for debt forgiveness for critical illness student loans ranks high but then there's other ones like what what if, what if someone just racks up credit card debt or car payments uh what's the public attitude on that well you know the the, the public attitude as far as a consumer debt like 23 percent of them are saying yeah i guess that's okay but I, what's important to understand you know the, the old adage like you can't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes and and so what we need to remember as, um, as Canadians is that we have this insolvency legislation and this ability to restructure ourselves um, as, as, a, as a legal right. And, and we should not confuse that legal right with sort of a moral imperative that, hey, I made a commitment, I absolutely need to hold up to this commitment, otherwise I'm not a moral person. The reality is when our creditors loan us money, they're very well aware of what our insolvency laws here are in Canada. And it's, it's more and more Canadians are becoming aware of their rights to restructure themselves so they can have a brighter future uh, going forward. Okay, speaking of Sean Stack. Okay, Sean, here's a really interesting one that a lot of people have found themselves in, in this jam here, and that is the CERB program uh, yeah. during COVID-19 and people who received CERB overpayments. Now, we have seen how the federal government has put a lot of people on notice, almost 190,000 Canadians uh, saying that received letters uh, saying that you got too much CERB, you didn't qualify for some of these payments, you would have to pay them back. Now, a lot of these people are independent contractors or they're freelance workers, they're gig economy workers who yeah. applied for the CERB money in good faith and then the government tells them later, well, actually, you didn't qualify, we want the money back. Now, have a listen to this. This is the federal NDP leader here, Jugmeet Singh, and he's making the case that people who are faced with these demands to pay back CERB money, he says you shouldn't, they shouldn't have to pay that money back. Here's, his, here's what he says, Jugmeet Singh. We've got independent workers who are just struggling to get by. These are people who are self-employed. They met the criteria as laid out by CRA, applied in good faith, only to receive weeks before the holidays, a letter saying they've got to pay back a massive amount of money. This is wrong. The Liberal government has it all wrong. They're going after the wrong people. They're going after self-employed people who are just earning enough to get by and letting powerful and wealthy companies that have taken over a billion dollars of public money turn around layoff workers and make a profit. They're being let off the hook. Yeah, so he's making the case there that there's a lot of big corporations and big companies that receive public assistance during the pandemic, and some of them are still continuing to make pretty good profits, and some have even laid, laid off workers. And he's saying, make them pay the money back. Leave these other people alone. Leave these workers yeah. alone. Sean, what do you think about that? Like someone who has received an overpayment on CERB, maybe they, you know, the government at the start of this thing was not super clear on the criteria. And some people applied for the CERB, they got the money, and then the government tells them later, well, actually, you didn't, you didn't qualify, we want the money back. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a huge tragedy, and I think it's, it's an unfortunate situation that people are under enough stress as it is, um, uh, particularly in the gig economy, and uh, when, when this lifeline comes out to find out, hey, wait a second, no, this lifeline was inappropriately given to you. 
Um, what's important, Mike, to understand is that um, under our under our insolvency legislation, which allows us to restructure and have our debts written off or forgiven, um, the only debts that actually survive, where where that uh, a citizen has to pay back, is debts that arise from uh, fraud theft or misrepresentation or embezzlement. And there's, you know, oddly enough, student loans, uh, if you haven't been out of school for seven years. But there is a mechanism within our society that allows us to restructure and get out from under this. And this is really what we do at Bromwich and Smith, is we help citizens understand what those options are to restructure. And when you look at something like um, corporations, corporations are... um, they don't, we as a people don't look at a corporation doing a restructuring under the CCAA or doing a, a restructuring through, you know, Chapter 11, if you were looking at in the States. We don't look at that as a moral imperative. We look at that and say, hmm, that's a good business strategy. And, and isn't it good that they were able to, um, to resurface in a better position? But when it comes to us as, as flesh and blood, natural Canadians, as citizens, we sort of poo-poo it and say, well, you should be paying this back and you should do this. The reality is what we need to do is we need to normalize this conversation around debt and restructuring and understand that it's okay. You can restructure. You can restructure this debt. That debt will go away. If the government does say, no, 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 you misrepresented it, well, they don't just get to declare that, Mike. They actually have have to demonstrate that. It has to be from a competent authority. It's not just an announcement. Okay. We continue to follow this issue with keen interest. Sean, I want to thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. Yeah, my pleasure, my friend. Okay, that is Sean Stack, Bromwich and Smith. I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, Cece Moore. She is a world-renowned DNA genealogist. She's a DNA detective who has helped solve notorious cold case murder files, including the Golden State Killer in California, former police officer Joseph DiGiangelo, a a former cop, serial killer, serial rapist, who terrified California in the 1970s and 1980s. William Talbot, the Seattle truck driver who murdered a vacationing B.C. couple in Washington State in 1987. Both of these cold-blooded killers now serving life sentences in jail thanks to groundbreaking DNA technology. C.C. Moore, she is a renowned expert on this. I'm delighted to have her back. Thank you for coming on. Hey, I'm thrilled to be back on. I always love to be on your show or any Canadian show. I do have to correct one thing. Although I have helped to solve over 150 cases, criminal cases, over the last two and a half years, I did not solve the Golden State Killer case. Barbara Ray Venter is the genetic genealogist responsible for that case. That was just prior to my decision to start working with law enforcement. I so my I, techniques were used for it, but yeah. I did not actually work it. Right. That's I, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Um, okay. I, I want to get I, I want to get your take clear. on it. Uh, absolutely. I am I'm thrilled to have you here because it's super exciting. Because just in the last week, we've heard some encouraging news about one of the most famous cold cases here in BC, the 2008 murder of Victoria real estate agent Lindsay Buziak. And I, I'm interested in getting your take on that. But let me ask you this, CC, real real briefly. Um, it's fascinating. I think someone should make a movie about your life, actually, because I just think it's fascinating how you got into this uh, kind of as an amateur and became like such an authority on it. Can you just briefly describe how you got into this work? Sure. So genetic genealogy is was really created by citizen scientists. It wasn't part of traditional forensic science or traditional academic science. It was something that a group of hobbyists created because we cared so much about learning about our family tree, 
when you are a genealogist, it's awfully often kind of an obsession. So you're looking for any avenues you can for discovery. So when okay. DNA became available to the public, we started working with it to see how much we could learn about first our own families and then later about other people's families like adoptees, etc. Right. Okay, CC, let me ask you about some of these these famous cases that in which this uh, this groundbreaking powerful technology has been used. Like we we talked earlier about the the uh, Golden State Killer and I take your point that you know that you you did not solve this case but this technology was like critical to catching this guy. So how does this work? Like that you have to have preserved DNA from a crime scene from a long time ago in a cold case in order to match it up and, and catch the killer later, right? That's exactly correct. So it really relies on the original crime scene investigators, what they were able to collect and preserve all of these years. So we owe them a huge debt that we're able to solve many of these cold cases today because of their foresight and collecting everything they could, even if they didn't know how it would be used in the future. Right. So in the case of the Golden State killer, uh, Joseph D'Angelo, they were able to pinpoint some of get sort of get a bead on him. And then they had to get a a sample from him. Right. And as I recall, in that case, I think wasn't there a tissue or or a door handle that he touched and they were able to get some DNA off of it? Right. So we can use touch DNA, which is a huge advancement. When they were following him, observing him, trying to get DNA to compare directly, you know, because genetic genealogy really just points them in the right direction. It's considered a lead, but they have to follow up and get that direct DNA comparison. Uh, They first got some DNA off a door handle. I think that was difficult to read. So then they had to get DNA off something else later, which may have been a tissue. I'm not sure. Let me ask you about another case that you were more closely involved in, and that is William Talbot, the Seattle truck driver who murdered a vacationing B.C. couple in Washington State in 1987, uh, Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kylenborg. Such a tragic case. They were just on. These are two young people who were in love with each other on a little vacation south of the border. Uh, They end up dead. Can you tell me briefly like how you got involved in that case and, and what it was like to kind of try to pinpoint the killer there? Sure. This case is very close to my heart. They all are. But this was the first case that I worked on with law enforcement. So it was wow. the first time I took the techniques I developed for adoptees and applied it to a cold case like this. It's also the first case where we got a conviction and a jury trial of someone that was identified through investigative genetic genealogy. So it's a hugely important case. Um, I was asked to work on it by um, Detective Scharf, who is a Snohomish County detective that was in charge of this case since it was in his jurisdiction. And I was very, very compelled (laughs) to work on this case because um, I have close ties to Victoria. And so I was aware of this case long before I decided to help law enforcement using my genetic genealogy skills. We got really lucky in this case, and we got two people in the GEDmatch database who shared enough DNA to be second cousins with the unknown killer. And so it was still to date my quickest solve, quote-unquote, meaning I was able to narrow it down just to this one man uh, in only about two hours. And that's not wow. typical. Yeah. What, what was that like? Was what amazing. was that like? Was that must have been an incredible moment for you to, to sort of realize that you've got a bead on this guy. You know who this is. What was that like when you sort of have that aha moment there? 
Yeah, it was kind of shocking. I'm used to having that moment for adoptees, but looking at somebody's name that I know is responsible for killing this young couple, it hadn't been proven yet, but I felt very strongly this was the only person who had the correct ancestral mix to be that suspect. It was very sobering. You know, when I am doing it in genealogy or for adoptees, I, it's a celebratory moment. This was much more sobering, and it was a very odd feeling to know that only I and he knew what he had done at that moment. Well, I know that, I, I know as well as you do, I happen to know some of the members of that family, the Van Kylenborg family, and I know how grateful they are for, for your work on this and, and bringing that killer to justice here. I've heard every version of what Sandwich Police have had to say about their dedication and new techniques they're using, and we have no results. Right now, what counts are arrests and charges. Words mean nothing at this point. All right, that's Jeff Buziak there, the father of Lindsay Buziak, the Victoria real estate agent who was just savagely slain uh, back in 2008. Maybe the most famous cold case murder in British Columbia, still unsolved. And it was interesting last week to get the news that there's an expanded investigation into this cold case now with the FBI uh, joining the investigation team. Let's continue my conversation now with C.C. Moore, world-renowned DNA gene- genealogist. She's a DNA detective. I know, C.C., I know you're not working on that Buziak case, right? But what are your thoughts right. on it? Well, it was very interesting to me to hear that because I actually met Lindsay's father when I appeared on Dr. Phil with him at the same episode. And so we had discussed the case and I became very interested in it. Dr. Phil himself asked me to look into it. At the time, it was my understanding that they didn't have DNA that was viable for investigative genetic genealogy analysis. So I was really disappointed. Now, I don't have any inside information on what's happening now, but what it looks like to me is that they're revisiting the evidence and perhaps they have found some DNA that could be used for genetic genealogy. But in this case now, it sounds like the FBI genetic genealogy team is involved. Okay, it's it's exciting and we continue to follow that case with, with great interest. It's just so tragic and so mysterious and we just hope that there's some sort of breakthrough there. There are so many other kind of famous unsolved murders out there. I, I'm sure many of these must must interest you. Like I, I'm just wondering like the John Benet Ramsey case, for example. Like did they um is there DNA evidence available in that one? Well, I'll tell you, thousands of people have written to me asking me to work on that case. But the only way I can work on a case is if the agency in charge invites me to do so. And for them to do that, they have to have DNA viable for this type of analysis. And I don't know. I don't know if they do in that case. I've heard uh, different things. I've heard that the DNA was used up. I've heard that what little DNA they have, they think is from a factory worker who, you know, made the underwear that she was wearing. So I don't know. Um, We'll see. Hopefully it can be solved. But back to Lindsay's case, I just want to say, if they have found DNA and they are doing genetic genealogy, they will find her killer or killers. They will. It will be solved. So there is definitely hope. And I really hope that's what's going on because it would be wonderful to see that case solved, even if I can't be the one to do it. Well, me too. I, I echo that. I second that opinion because I just hope and hope and pray for this family. I've been talked to them over the years that they get some sort of closure on this, and that would be that would be wonderful. It just shows you the power 
of this DNA technology, this DNA evidence. That's just it's just incredible yeah. that that you're they're able yeah, to solve I, these cold cases. Know, yeah, your thoughts. Say that Canada has been using this technique. They've just done it quietly. And so people are always asking me as well, you know, why aren't you working on Canadian cases? Why isn't Canada using this technique? They are. Canada's just better at keeping a secret than the United States. We have had a number of cases solved in Canada that we worked on with investigative genetic genealogy. Now, the first one that went public was the Christine Jessup case, which was not a case I worked on. But there have been a number of others that have successfully used this technique. And I'm sure Canadians will be hearing a lot more about that in the near future. Just got a minute left here, CC. The power of this technology is just incredible. Do you think it's, um, maybe it sends, sends a deterrent? Maybe it could prevent crimes in the future when people know, like, even like a small trace of DNA, they can catch you? Yeah, that's my greatest hope. It's very difficult to commit a violent crime, a personal violent crime, like rape without leaving your DNA behind. Probably right. impossible. And if you leave your DNA behind, we can solve it now. And so I really do hope people will stop and think if someone's about to act in a moment of passion, maybe they'll remember that we have investigative genetic genealogy now, and maybe that will be enough to keep somebody from uh, victimizing someone else. Thank you for the fantastic work that you're doing, and I wish you continued success. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you. C.C. Moore, the world-renowned DNA genealogist, the DNA detective. Really appreciate her time today. All right. Uh, let's talk now about the fossil fuel divestment movement. Now, this is a campaign by climate change groups to pressure institutions like colleges and universities in Canada to pull any investment funds out of fossil fuel companies and stocks, put them into more sustainable investments. Here's the breaking news on that one this week. The University of Victoria has announced that they will pull about $80 million in investments out of fossil fuel stocks in their investment fund, put that money into short-term bonds, focusing on reducing carbon intensity. Um, the movement, the divestment movement, very happy at this news. They are celebrating this as a victory. Let's talk about it now. I got both sides of it for you. Peter McCartney on the line. He's a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Peter. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Also on the line is Stuart Muir, Executive Director of ResourceWorks. Hi, Stuart. Good morning. Thank you, guys, both of you, for being here. Peter McCartney, let me go to you first. What's your reaction to this news at the University of Victoria? Yeah, I mean, I think it's great. It's certainly the way the world is moving. And, um, you know, they they probably, if they had listened to their students and faculty uh, years earlier, they'd probably be in a lot better financial shape right now. So it's good to see. Um, and uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of it. What, what is the point of this? Is it like just symbolic or does it actually put pressure on governments and companies, do you think? You know, I think it's both. I mean, it certainly uh, creates the movement for uh, or the space for um, larger financial institutions to be taking a look at their own exposure to fossil fuels. And, of course, we know the oil and gas uh, sector and the coal sector have really struggled to find uh, capital in recent years. And one of the reasons, I think, is because of uh, this movement of people that has, has made it um, politically unpalatable to be able to uh, keep investing in something that threatens, uh, you know, human civilization as we know it. Okay, Stuart Muir, he's from ResourceWorks. He supports the oil and gas sector. Stuart, what do you think about this? I think the most likely explanation for the divestment movement is 
because it's on university campuses and in lots of different places, it's a way for young people at universities to feel like they're having a positive effect on, on the world. So it makes them feel good. There's no evidence that it, it uh, actually does that in any way. In fact, the evidence I see is that it, it probably does uh, the, the, the opposite, certainly for the Canadian uh, uh, economy because of the, the way that we're structured here. So even though there's a sort of positive glow as students at UVic sit in their uh, natural gas-heated dorms and, and natural gas-heated university buildings today, uh, celebrating their victory for the environment, um, it's, it's really nothing of the sort. All right, Peter, you better respond to that. What do you think? Yeah, Jesus, it sounds like some sour grapes to me, to be honest. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of really talented activists uh, in the movement got their start, you know, working on divesting their school from fossil fuels. Uh, But, you know, to say it doesn't have an impact when the world's largest asset manager, uh, you know, BlackRock, they're managing 6.9 trillion U.S. dollars worth of assets, is now moving away from fossil fuels and uh, starting with coal in their portfolio. Um, you know, I, I don't think that happens without a movement of people really pointing at and and really expertly um, presenting this information to uh, you know financiers that you know investing in something that doesn't have a future that is in direct conflict um, with where we need to go as a planet yeah. is is not a good investment. It can't let me, be. Let me ask you this, Peter. This is something that occurred to me. Like, let's say you are an alumnus of the University of Victoria. Let's let's say you went to school there. Maybe you got a degree in engineering or, or, or science, and you've ended up working in the energy sector. Like, maybe you work in the oil and gas sector. Maybe you work in the mining sector, and you got your training, your degree as an engineer or a scientist at the University of Victoria. How do you think that that person would feel hearing that their own university is now pulling pulling investments out of the industry that they work in? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think folks that work in the fossil fuel industry know that, you know, there's an expiration date. Um, so I, I, I don't think anybody would be particularly surprised. I'd, I'd feel bad if they felt hurt, but I mean, they have to know that, you know, the world's money is moving away from this. Certainly all the family that I have that work in that industry uh, can see the writing on the wall. And, you know, I think hopefully, uh, you know, they'll they'll see the, the flow of, uh, of dollars into industries that can still employ them using a lot of the same skills. Um, well, you know, an engineer can easily work on mm-hmm. green energy. Well, I don't and, know. I mean, I, I just imagine that someone who had received their training at the University of Victoria, seeing their own uh, alum, alumnus, Alumni University kind of turning against their industry like that would be pretty devastating. But I don't know, Stuart, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the university has a mandate. There's a letter given by the province of BC, which gives uh, uh, a quarter of a billion dollars to UVic every year. Uh, They've been told in the most recent mandate letter to focus on trades and technology and and make sure they're, they're pursuing high opportunities. You know, what they're doing now seems to run against that. So I think the province of BC is probably saying, um, let, let's uh, learn more about what you're doing out there. Because you know what's going on here in, in our economy in Canada, oil and gas, since we're talking about oil and gas, it spends more on research on and development than any other industry. So I, I think the message here is we're not interested in research and development. We want to get away with it, uh, you know, uh, away from that, which is not the good direction to go in. If you're 
uh, and, you know, I think Pete is sincere about wanting to have a cleaner, better world, but why he's advocating for things that take us in the opposite direction puzzles me because the path to a cleaner, better future is to have a strong economy. Okay. And we need to keep evolving and improving oil and gas. I mean, they're not perfect, but they do need to be improved because they will be part of the energy mix for decades to come. Let's go to your phone calls here. Rob and Mission. Hey, Rob. Uh, yeah, I wanted to say I definitely support... You can hear me here, right? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Um, I definitely support the uh, the move. Uh, we're currently going through a sixth mass extinction, and in order to do something about saving the biodiversity on this planet, we need to move in this direction. And I'd just like to point out something, Mike. Um, yeah. Your question about the, uh, the UVic alumni working in the oil and gas sector, I think what you were looking for was a, an emotional response. Like, uh, they were left high and dry by the the uh the university that they supported you know to get their degree but we need to and i understand we're we're an emotional species but we need to balance that with logic and reason and if you use well, no, logic i'm not, I'm not talking i'm really not talking about emotional response there like i'm just imagining someone who is a tr- like let's say a trained engineer or scientist at the university of victoria who is working in the oil and gas sector and is proud to do so and maybe is contributing money to their own university, their own alma mater, and then that university turns around and says, we're pulling investments out of your industry that employs you. Like, I don't think that's necessarily emotional. I'm just wondering if that, like, how someone would would, would react to something like that. Like, would they cancel their own... You know, contributions to that university as yeah, a result. Like, I'd be, you I'd be pissed. logic and reason, and you use the science that is there to tell us where, what direction we need to go. Well, I think for, the logical, the logical react. Well, to well, do the lo- well after us, it needs to go in that direction. Well, I, gotta, well yeah, like, but I'm, I'm saying to you that I think maybe a logical reaction of someone working in that industry would be to p- be pissed. But let me go to Stuart Muir. Well, Stuart, that's what? Okay. Yeah, okay. You know, I think I think uh, there's a lot of in what Rob says that I agree with. One thing though is the unintended consequence, which is that this won't affect. There's no, you know there's no peer. Rob wants scientific evidence. I'll, I'll say there's no peer reviewed evidence that says this will have any positive impact on anything. But what it will do if investment isn't available to Canadian oil and gas, which is the most improving. Uh, fossil fuel sector in the world, if you look at it objectively. Instead, it will go to places like China, China state oil companies. Russia is building a $140 billion Arctic oil complex. They will produce oil if we don't. So it will still be consumed. It won't change the the greenhouse effect. Let me go to Peter McCartney on that, get his response. Peter. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird, Stuart, saying that this is completely ineffective, but also if these companies are starved of investment dollars, they'll move elsewhere. What we know is globally, the oil and gas industry is not getting investment dollars anymore because, you know, and I'm going to read a quote here from the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink. Climate change has become a defining factor in companies' long-term prospects. I believe we are on the edge of a fundamental reshaping of finance. This is not... You know, university students are green activists saying that these are some of the most powerful bankers in the world, and we're clearly moving that way. And if Canada wants to wants to compete um, in the global economy of the 21st century, we are absolutely going to have to put money into trades and technologies that aren't oil and gas. We need to stop this tunnel vision on this one industry and, and move on. Okay, let's go to some more phone calls here. Erica on the line in Richmond. Hi. Yeah, hi. Well, I think oil is going to be here for a very long time because as long as we have plastics or asphalt, all the byproducts of oil that we need and we never talk about, really. 
but I don't think that business should pull out investments out of the oil, uh, out of the oil business, um, because, uh, like the gentleman said, our oil is relatively very, very clean when we, we look at the whole world production. And I still don't understand why we are importing Arabian oil, which is definitely dirty. Okay, well, let me get Peter's thoughts on that. Like, Peter, you know, a lot of people bring up that point that we're not going to be able to switch the, uh, turn the switch off on oil and gas overnight. There'll be a transition period. But, like, how long do you think it would take to wean the, wean the world off of this? I mean, there's no doubt that we have a transition period. Um, you know, we're talking about the next 30 years. In 30 years, there can't be an oil and gas industry anymore on this planet if we want to maintain a safe climate. And so we have time to transition some of these jobs, but when you're in a hole, you, you stop digging and you don't keep adding more oil and gas, and especially Canada's oil and gas. You know, this idea that it's cleaner than everybody else's is just, it, it doesn't have any grounding in science. Okay. It, we, bo- we boil our, ga- our oil out of sand and no one's doing that to create plastic. I'm sorry. It's just not, um, it's not possible. Okay. We just got a minute left here. Sadly, Stuart, your response. Yeah. I, you know, I think the, the thing to focus on is reducing emissions, and it's it's absolutely true. We all know that there's a climate problem, but taking investment away from those who are solving the climate problem is terrible policy. And when a university uses public dollars like play money to pursue things where there's no evidence that actually helps anything, then I think those who manage that dollar, and I'm looking to you, the province of BC, if you're listening, have a look, make sure, have a look at what UBC did. They created a clean investment fund to respond to student pressures like this so the students can feel good about things, which I, I think they should be able to feel good about that they're doing. That w- that's a better model than divestment, which is negative and divisive, and, and it doesn't right. solve anything. Gentlemen, we're out of time. We're out of time. I wish we had more because we do have more calls on the line, so we'll just have to do it again. We'll just have to have you back, and uh, we'll take we'll take some more calls. My thanks to both of you. There was Stuart Muir there, Executive Director of Resource Works. Peter McCartney is a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. Thanks a lot for all your calls there.